0: Welcome to Russian History Retold, episode number 205, The History of Ukraine and its Relationship to Russia, part one. Last time, we wrapped up our series about Siberia with a look at its effects on women and children, focusing on the gulags. Today, I'm starting a new series about Ukraine's history and its relationship with Russia. Before I start, I wanted to share with you a personal issue as my daughter, Anastasia, or as some of us call her Anastasia, has tested positive for the COVID-19 virus. As she has epilepsy, she is a high risk for symptoms and is currently in the local hospital's COVID ward. While she is recovering and the past few days have been really good, it's still touch and go. She needs to test negative twice before she returns to her home. Thoughts and prayers are always welcome. I also want to say a huge thank you for the hundreds of well wishes from my Facebook group. My family and I greatly appreciate it. My sources for today's episode include Borderland A Journey Through the History of Ukraine by Anna Reed, The Gateway to Europe A History of Ukraine by Sergei Plokhi, and Cultures of the World Ukraine by Voldemir Basis and Sakina Dilawala, along with my extensive library. The history of Ukraine truly deserves a podcast of its own. Unfortunately, I am not the person, nor is this the time I can do something this monumental. What I will try to do is give an overview of Ukrainian history, and at the same time, try to relate it to Russia without diminishing the rich history of this unique land. The word Ukraine, literally translates, meaning borderland, or on the edge, which fits its history and location. Very emotional and sometimes hostile arguments have been made for and against the notion that Ukraine is a separate and unique people. Today, there is tension along the eastern border between Russia and Ukraine that has been going on for years. The Russian side claims that, and rightfully so, Ukraine's only become an independent country in 1991 that had always been part of Russia, Lithuania, or Poland over the centuries. As you will see as we move along Ukraine's history, the problem is that it is really a distinctive land and people but with its feet clearly crossing many other borders over the years. Still, no history of Russia or Ukraine can exist without mention of the city of Kiev. While researching for this broadcast, I became aware of a different pronunciation for the capital of Ukraine. The Russified and Anglicanized version of Kiev has been put aside and has been replaced with the Ukrainian version of Kiev. According to Ukrainians I've come across, they want us to use their version as a sign of respect for their culture and language. And if I botch the pronunciation, of and what I've heard from a couple of YouTube videos on people who are Ukrainian, is that you think of it as almost having two syllables, k and yiv. I'll try to be as consistent as possible, no guarantees here. There is a Russian proverb that says, if Moscow is Russia's heart and St. Petersburg is its head, Kiev is its mother. As Anna Reid states in her book, quote, Ukrainians, of course, say Kiev has nothing whatsoever to do with Russia. If she has mothered anyone, it was the Ukrainians themselves. My position is, why can't the ancient city be a mother to two nations, Ukraine and Russia? I want to also state very clearly that too many people call it the Ukraine, and that kind of diminishes it. It is only Ukraine. So that's another idea and thing that I'm going to make sure that we continue following throughout this podcast. I was tempted to start the history of Ukraine with the writings of the ancient Greek historian Herodotus. As a matter of fact, I did do just that when I first began writing the script for today's episode, but that one somehow disappeared somewhere in the bells of my laptop. As I read through some of my sources, I understood that this was not really necessary, as I'd already done much of that, especially on the Patreon site of Russian rulers when I reviewed the history of the Rus before Russia. My new beginning of this episode starts with the founding of the city of Kyiv, which we know about, begins with archaeologic digs, which tell us that the Khazars had established the town as one of their westernmost outposts. Legend, though, claims that a local Slavic ruler named Kiy, along with his two brothers, Sheshek and Koryev, along with his sister, Libid, found the city, hence its name. Although the Khazars, who had initially named the city in their own languages, Kiy, which equals riverbank, and Iv, which equals settlement. The date of the founding is also in question, as in 1982 the city celebrated its 1500th anniversary. Archaeologic evidence pushes the beginning forward a bit to about the 6th century. Whatever the truth is, it is one of the oldest cities in Eastern Europe. We know very little about the people who inhabited the lands that would become Ukraine, except they were Slavic and had assimilated several peoples who invaded the lands like the Scythians, Samartians, Huns, and Goths over the centuries. They were not a single tribe, but at least 12 tribes of people who were sedentary and agriculturists as the land was very fertile. This is why Ukraine has been known as the breadbasket of Europe to this day. Beginning in the early to mid-9th century, we see a new invasion from the north that was to change Ukrainian and Russian history forever. It was the attack from areas now known as Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. The Vikings, Norsemen, Normans, or as we've talked about in the past in this podcast, the Varangians invaded. These people were known to the Byzantine Empire as the Rus. The term's origins generally accepted by many scholars, comes from the Finnish word rotsi, meaning men who row. Their goal in coming to the land of the Slavic people was likely not to try and conquer them, as Professor Plochi mentions in his book, but as traders heading down the river system all the way to the grand city of Constantinople. The problem the Varangians had was that the Khazars, who already had developed trade routes to the Byzantine capital, the Primary Chronicle, also known as the Tale of Bygone Years, is one of our only sources about these times, so it should be viewed with a bit of skepticism. With the Khazars holding the city of Kyiv as a trading post, it is said that Rurik's brothers, Askold and Deir, took the city, but were eventually killed by Oleg the supposed brother-in-law of the first semi-legendary ruler of the Rus, Rurik. He became the new ruler of the city of Kyiv. One thing that Professor Plokhi uses is not the name Oleg, but his Viking name, Helgi. While the primary chronicle states that the Slavic people invited the Varangians to rule them, that is highly unlikely. In all likelihood, there may have been a couple of tribes that did to protect themselves from other Slavic tribes. One tribe that was not happy with having to pay tribute to the Vikings was the Dervilians. They would supposedly kill the successor to Oleg, Igor, also known as Ingvar. Ingvar's wife, Ola, whose Russian name is Olga, got revenge on the Dervilians by killing them all. Her son Sviatoslav would be the next in line to rule the Rus, but his reign was short as he was killed returning from Byzantium by the Pechenegs. It is Olha's grandson, Voldemir, known to many as Vladimir the Great, who would take Kiev to another level. Well, there was an interim grand prince or Viliki Knyaz in Yaropolk. Vladimir would eventually win out and develop a far better relationship with Constantinople than his predecessors. His reign from 1015 to 1054 would transform Kyiv and the land of the Rus to an important power, as well as making it an Orthodox Christian ally of the Byzantine Empire. During Voldemir's battle with his brother Yaropolk, he invited a new second wave of Vikings to enter the land of the Rus, but this was not a bunch of guys looking to trade goods, but a stream of mercenaries looking for conquest and loot. Voldemir had to carefully work with these men and avoid having them turn on him. He did so by aiming his troops at the one big prize out there, Constantinople. Before he took on the Byzantines, he vanquished two old enemies of the Rus' Khazars the and the Bulgars. Voldemir's goal in attacking Constantinople was more than just getting trade concessions, which his predecessors tried to get. No, he wanted something. Actually, someone. The emperor of the Byzantine Empire at the time was Basil II, and the person Voldemir really wanted was his sister Anna. At first, Basil was reluctant to give up his sister to what he viewed as a barbarian. Still, he realized that an alliance with the head of the Rus would be a beneficial deal. The marriage of Anna and Voldemir came with one catch. The leader of the Rus had to convert to orthodoxy. Of course, the story went that the great religions of the time, Catholicism, Judaism, Islam, and orthodoxy all presented their case. Still, the reality may be as simple as, Voldemir really wanted to ally himself with the most significant power in the region. After Voldemir died, we have another fratricidal war between his sons, with Sviatopolk reigning supreme for the moment. It is said he had had two of his brothers, Boris and Gleb, murdered. They would become the first Russian Orthodox saints, but it is just as likely that his older brother, Yaroslav, did the deed. Whatever the case, Sviatopolk the Accursed would only last for four years, 1015-1019. to His successor would be Yaroslav the Wise, and his reign would represent one of the zeniths of Kyiv's history. It would be downhill from there, but there would be a couple of little jumps up. Kyiv was one of the largest cities in the Western world during the 35-year reign of Yaroslav. So ensconced in European politics of the time, three of his daughters would marry into other royal families. Ilisiv would marry Harald Hardrada, the king of Norway and claimant to the British throne. He was defeated in 1066 by Harold Goodwinson at the Battle of Stamford Bridge. His death at that battle would mark the end of the Viking Age, according to many historians. Anastasia would marry the future Andrew I of Hungary, who would rule his country for 14 years. Lastly, Anne would marry King Henry I of France as his second wife. He did not only rule France for 29 years, but he was also the uncle-in-law of William the Conqueror. After her husband died in 1060, Anne would serve as regent to his heir, their son, Philip I. After Yaroslav died in 1054, we have a number of his sons and grandsons rule Kyiv, starting with Iziaslav, followed by Sviatoslav II, Vesvolod I, Sviatopolk II, and then Vladimir Monomakh. His reign is considered by some to be the golden age of Kyiv and the land of the Rus. He would rule in one way or another from between 1094 to 1119. Unfortunately, within 10 years of his death, the city of Kiev would be torn asunder. Ten people would serve as the Grand Prince of the city until Vesvalad began his reign in 1177, which would usher in yet another golden age. He would be better known as Vesvalad the Big Nest, as he was a prodigious father, as he had 14 children. When he died in 1212, there was squabbling between the princes of towns leading to constant warfare, which weakened Kyiv. Little did they all know that a much more significant threat was about to appear on the horizon the Mongols. Before we move on, I'd like to put in a pitch for my other Russian history podcast on Patreon. For just 5 or $10 a month, you can listen to extra episodes like the one on the prehistory of the lands of the Rus', the ancient pagan religion and gods before Vladimir introduced Christianity to Russia and a review, which I just finished today, of the uh, 30 Greatest Russian Historians of All Time. It was a two-part series. Included with your subscription are book reviews, one of which I'm going to do shortly. It's about two books written by a listener of our podcast and Facebook friend Jane Marlowe. I'm also going to do another fictional book, which I found interesting, uh, uh, Ruska by Rutherford. Also, will on occasion read chapters from my upcoming book, Understanding Russia, due out in September 2020. And you will get a copy of it when that comes out. If you want to learn more about Russia, go over to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Russian Rulers and sign up today. Arriving initially in 1223, the Mongols' invasion would become the splitting point of Ukrainian and Russian history. The definitive end of the end of Kyivian Rus is generally recognized as December 7, 1240. After the loss by the Rus at the Battle of the Kalka River in May 1223, the Mongols retreated back as the initial phase of the invasion was merely a reconnaissance mission. The real invasion, led by Batu Khan, would begin in 1237 and come to an end in 1242. December 7th, 1240, was the day that Kyiv was sacked and its inhabitants slaughtered. Such was the devastation of the city that when an ambassador to Pope Innocent IV, Giovanni del Carpine, traveled through Kyiv, he wrote, when we were journeying through that land, we came across countless skulls and the bones of dead men lying on the ground. Kyiv would never recover its, would not recover its population for centuries, and of course, would never really again regain its position as one of the great cities of Europe, although it is really trying today. While the Mongols dealt Kyiv the final death blow, the city was already in a steep decline due to constant civil war and the move of the seat of power both religiously and militarily to the city of Vladimir and what is now Russia. By the time the Mongols arrived, the capital of Kyiv was but a shadow of its former glory. With the coming of the Mongols, we have a new leader and a new principality becoming dominant. The leader is Prince Danielo and the principality is Galicia-Volhynia. It is the policy of Prince Danielo that would create the separation between Russia and Ukraine. While the Russians were almost totally isolated from the West, Danilo focused on rebuilding the relations between his people and his Western neighbors. In 1246, during a meeting with Giovanni del Carpine, the papal legate we heard of earlier, they discussed a stronger relationship with the Pope then Innocent IV. The Pope then urged other Western powers to help support Daniello in his fight against the Mongols. Initially, starting in 1253, Daniello actually enjoyed success in his fight. His timing was actually pretty good as well, as Batu Khan died in 1255. A struggle for the control of the now Golden Horde caused the Mongols to lose control of the region, but that was not to last very long. Five years later, they returned with a massive army led by Mongol military commander Burundi. He would force Daniello and his troops to aid them in campaigns against Poland and Lithuania, and Daniello had no choice. Another policy of Daniello's that showed the difference between Russia and Ukraine is his willingness to court the Catholics and the Pope in Rome versus courting the Orthodox in Constantinople and their Patriarch. Because of this, when a metropolitan of all Rus was appointed by the Patriarch, he was banned from taking a position in Galicia. Instead, he initially went to Vladimir and eventually transferring to Moscow, which is the beginning of the rise of that town. One point made by Professor Plokhi in in his book, The Gates of Europe, needs to be discussed here. Mongol rule over Much of what is now Russia was much stricter and lasted longer than the rule over other parts of the Rus, the core of modern Russia. The areas around Moscow were simply closer to the heart of the lands possessed by the Khans of the Golden Horde. Galicia, Volhynia, the province might have lasted for some time as an independent entity. Unfortunately, in 1323, Two grandsons of Daniello died with no other male heirs. Prince Boleslaw of Mazovia in Poland claimed rights as a distant nephew. This did not enamor him with the local Rus' nobility. The coming strife split the province in half, with Poland taking over Galicia and Lithuania grabbing control of Volhynia. The split up and subsequent merging of Lithuania and Poland wrested control of the lands that would become Ukraine. Before that happened, the Lithuanian army defeated the Tatars, who were a tribe of the Mongols, and in particular the Nogai. In thirteen sixty two, a combined force of Rus warriors and Lithuanians defeated the Tartars in a battle on the Sinivodi, a river in today's central Ukraine. What is interesting about the new power, Lithuania, is that most of their elite were pagans until sometime in the fifteenth century. They married into the families of the Rus and converted to orthodoxy. Cultural as well as political and social changes came about through the influence of the Poles and Lithuanians. This is yet another reason why Ukraine and Russia are genuinely different. In 1385, the Kingdom of Poland and the Grand Duchy of Lithuania joined forces, and in 1569, the Union of Lublin created and formed the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. It was here that Ukraine split from what was to become Belarus. By the late 14th century, the Mongol yoke was pretty much broken, although it would last in Russia until 1480. There was a threat from the remnants of the Golden Horde in the Ottoman Empire, backed by Crimean Tatars. They would raid Ukrainian lands and steal from the inhabitants and take them to be sold in the markets of Constantinople as slaves. This would cause the rise of a new group of men, men who would try to protect the residents of Ukraine, the Cossacks. Join me next time when we come back to Ukraine in the 16th century and follow its history to 1991, when it becomes an independent nation for the first time. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to try me out at my Patreon Russian Rulers podcast. You'll be glad you did. So until next time, до свидания и спасибо bolshoya.